Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of The Water Cooler. We've got so much to talk about this week, but before we get into it, make sure you follow The Water Cooler on Instagram at TWCPod. Go check us out on millions.com under The Water Cooler page. Go follow us on Facebook, also at The Water Cooler. Follow us on X, TWC1. Be sure to check out our merch on Millions. We've got great t-shirts, sweatshirts, hats, all kinds of good products for you to send your loved ones, your sweetheart to on Christmas. Just be sure to check it out and do what you can to support the page. It means the world to me. So that being said, let's jump right into it. So from the start, we're going to be talking about the Iron Bowl. Ohio State losing to Michigan. CM Punk and Randy Orton make massive returns. Greg Popovich goes off on the San Antonio Spurs fans and a lot more. So to kick it off, we're going to go with the Iron Bowl in what was an instant classic. That catch by Isaiah Bond from Jalen Milrow will immediately go up there with the kick six. With that triple overtime thriller from two years ago, Bo Jackson jumping over the Alabama D-line as one of the greatest moments in the history of the Alabama-Auburn rivalry. And what was also just a great game, just back and forth from the start. I was driving home during the game, and I would just be constantly asking Siri for updates. And at first it was like, Alabama's up seven, great. Then I checked about ten minutes later, up oh, it's tie game. Check again, Alabama's up three. And then it would just go back and forth. And finally, especially in the second half, I would check and it would say Auburn's up 24 to 20. And I'd check again, same score. Then finally, Siri told me Auburn's up 24 to 20 with one minute left. And that was to me, the end of hope, I was sitting there, I was like, I'll probably check again in five minutes and find out that Alabama's season has just been completely thrown down the toilet. But I get a call 30 seconds later from my mom, who's a massive Auburn fan, telling me what happened. The second I got home, my roommate was showing me all of the highlights and everything from the game. That catch was so beautiful. Isaiah Bond looked like Dirk Nowitzki. The way he caught that was just a picture-perfect NBA-esque fadeaway. And to think that Auburn almost got a fumble and gave up another touchdown in 30 seconds. It just goes to show you sometimes. Now that play got overturned because apparently the guy who picked up and recovered the fumble was out at the three-yard line. But if that touchdown had gone through, the final score would have been, I believe, 34-24, to 24, which doesn't even look like a close game if you just read the box score. But people that actually watch a game would have a completely different impact on the score. And so it's just curious sometimes how the final point tally can be deceiving. But... The game just sounded like a complete epic clash. That's one thing about rivalry games is you never really know how they're going to turn out because it's, in football, when teams just hate each other so much the way that an Auburn and an Alabama do, the way that Michigan and Ohio State do, Georgia, Georgia Tech, what have you, even if one of the teams is so much better than the other and that other team has no shot of making the playoffs, that rivalry game becomes their championship and they will give their all just to win that one game that means absolutely nothing outside of bragging rights and pride. And that's what sports is all about, really. I mean, if you look at the Georgia-Georgia Tech game, Georgia Tech is trash and has been trash for over a decade possibly two decades. All I know is I'm 22 years old. I don't remember ever paying attention to a season where Georgia Tech might have a shot at the big national championship run. So they're just, they're trash. And 
that being said, they actually had a relatively close competitive game with the number one team in the country. So, and you never know what can happen. Now, to get like in-depth in the Auburn-Alabama game and the weeds a little bit with stats, uh, Jalen Milrow had a pretty good game throwing-wise. 259 yards. He converted on most of his throws. He also led the team in rushing with 107 yards and 18 carries. He had more carries than he threw catches, which always bugs me and will probably never not bug me. But at least we won, and it never hurts to have a quarterback that can run. I'm just old school. I think if your quarterback is getting more carries than he's getting catches, maybe he should be your running back. But what do I know? Nick Saban knows more about football than I ever have the capacity of knowing. And it seems to be working so far. But the Auburn QBs was not their game as far as throwing went. Auburn was very run heavy. They got their first touchdown. was a really good run, actually, in the first quarter towards the end. But it was just mostly a knockdown, drag-out, defensive run game that was played. Now, the most exciting game was the Iron Bowl, but the most important game by far was Ohio versus Michigan, which saw Michigan beating Ohio 30-24, to and the new AP poll came out today. Ohio State drops down to 6, and that has major playoff implications because as it stands, the new AP poll, which is no longer the end-all, be-all, the college football playoff poll is what will determine the who makes the playoffs nationally, but still the AP poll is insightful. The new top four is Georgia, Michigan, Washington, and Florida State. Now, if very easily, Ohio State, Oregon, who are 5-6, and six, could slide in, but... As it stands, Georgia, Michigan, Washington, and Florida State. Now, Ohio State and Michigan had a pretty good competitive game, but not quite as competitive as I thought it would be. I mean, Michigan only won by six, but I don't know, I kind of thought it would come down to like an Iron Bowl type final second drive back and forth, what have you. But it's still a big win nonetheless. It really gives Michigan a lot of momentum going forward. And it might even put them over Georgia in the college football playoff poll because Georgia has yet to be an opponent the caliber of Ohio State. I mean, nobody has because aside from Michigan, which is why I think that should slide them up to number one. But who knows, that struggle win against Penn State will probably hold them back to a certain degree. But interestingly enough, (laughs) Florida got a pretty good shot of knocking off FSU but fell short. FSU won 24-15. Washington almost lost to Washington State 24-21 which is why I'm kind of surprised they are above FSU just because Washington State isn't anything special and you would expect the number three team in the country to beat them by more than three points. But that's the current college football playoff standings. We'll have to see how things play out going forward. But the number one game left to be played before the playoffs is the SEC Championship this weekend. And that game could unleash Pandora's box on the rankings and who made the playoffs. Now, I'm picking Georgia to win. I think there's a 60-40 shot that Georgia wins. So 
I don't think it will have major playoff implications. But on the off chance that Alabama does win, I have no idea what's going to happen. So if Alabama beats Georgia, then there's a good argument to be made that Alabama should make the playoffs because they only have one loss and they beat the number one team in the country. So it would stand to reason, and they're the SEC champions, which is the champion of the toughest division. It just makes sense. They would be in the playoffs. However, Alabama is a one-loss team, and that one loss is to Texas, who is currently ranked one above them. Now, Texas's loss was later in the season against a less impressive opponent, but the way they look at these things, that's not always what's important. So it could very well work out that Alabama beating Georgia ends up putting Texas into the playoffs and doing nothing for Alabama. Now, I think that's silly if it does work out that way, but very likely could. It could also slide Ohio State back up into the top four. So you could see a thing where maybe Georgia drops to six, Ohio State goes up to four. I don't know, maybe Oregon slides in ahead. I feel like Ohio State is a much more legit national championship team than Oregon is. So, I mean, Alabama beating Georgia could lead to Oregon, Ohio State, Texas, or Alabama making the playoffs. And which one of those four teams takes Georgia's spot is up for the <laughs> the pole masters to decide. And that is not an position I would envy them to have because it's a tough choice. I mean, I'm biased. I think if Alabama beats Georgia, Alabama should make the playoffs. But what do I know? I think Georgia's going to win. I don't think it's going to matter. But be on the lookout if it does because it will be exciting, especially if you're into reading sports takes on Twitter because there will be so much debate between Bama fans and Texas fans in particular, but also Ohio State and Oregon fans. It'll be so much fun to watch. But the SEC Championship, I think, will be a really good game. Now, Alabama hasn't had the most consistent season, and that has been my biggest harp on them this entire season has just been they'll have good wins, like against LSU, dominant. Then they'll come out against Auburn, who is statistically, as far as rankings go, a much worse team than LSU, and they'll struggle the entire time. So it doesn't make me confident going into the SEC championship. That being said, Georgia, their undefeated record doesn't tell the entire story because they have shown little chinks in the armor that if Alabama plays the perfect game for them, they can overcome. Georgia's defense has gotten off to very slow starts lately especially against Ole Miss and Missouri. So if Alabama can find a way to take advantage of their defense's slow start and Alabama's defense shows up and can actually put some pressure on the UGA offense, unlike Ole Miss, who they had their 7 to nothing lead and then just got completely ran through for the rest of the game. If Alabama can give resistance and take advantage of Georgia's slow defense, that's their key to victory. But unless that happens, they don't have a shot. If they try to get into an offensive back and forth with Georgia, then it's they're done. So to me, that's the only hope Alabama has. Jalen Milrow is going to have to show up both with his legs and his arm, hopefully his arm, because that is another big factor in how good Alabama has performed this season is you can basically track it to how good Jalen Milrow has been throwing the ball and running but mostly throwing. Games where he's amazing at both have been our most impressive wins. Games where he's good at running but has a horrendous throwing night have been our worst games. I don't even know if he's had any games where he's been good at throwing and not running I'd have to do a deeper dive, but 
Milrow needs to throw, and the defense needs to show up, and that's what it's going to take for Alabama to be competitive. Now, in the world of the NFL, Aaron Rodgers is eyeing a comeback against, I think it's the Jaguars. He's eyeing a comeback on Christmas Day. And I think that's one of the silliest ideas that I've read in a while. Aaron Rodgers is 39 years old. He just tore his Achilles tendon, one of the most significant tendons of it for any athlete, and that wasn't even three months ago at this point. Might have been four at the latest. So for him at 39 to think he can get back this season is pushing the bounds of credibility to start with. And it's even more ridiculous when you take into account the fact that the Jets are currently 4-7. and seven. So it's not like he's trying to rush back because they're in the midst of some really tight playoff run and Aaron Rodgers coming back could be the thing it takes to put them over the top and to make them Super Bowl contenders. Aaron Rodgers could come back tomorrow, and the Jets still aren't going to be serious Super Bowl contenders. So there is no point in him rushing his rehab just to get back for them to not make the playoffs. And odds are, if he rushes back too soon, there's a good chance he could either exacerbate his injury or injure himself in another way. Like, for example, he might have to compensate by putting a lot of weight on his other leg, which might could lead to another Achilles tendon tear in that leg. So that could be, if he does come back too soon and he gets injured, that could be a wrap on Aaron Rodgers in the NFL. And to me, the risk is a lot better or a lot higher than the reward of he comes back and maybe absolute best case scenario, he gets the Jets in a wild card game and they get put out in the second round. So I just don't see the point or the wisdom in him bringing himself back for little to no reason other than the argument for Aaron Rodgers coming back is he needs as much time to build chemistry with his team as he possibly can. He is 39 years old. So he needs as much time to work on chemistry as he can get. And if he comes back this season, they kind of start to tinker around, experiment, because they know they're not going to make a deep playoff run. And they can be a little bit more risky with the plays they try, what they're calling. And it gives them a better idea of where they're at and how to build their strategy over the offseason going into next season. Which, that's a solid argument. And if Aaron Rodgers was 29 instead of 39, I might could be convinced that it would be prudent for them to do that. But he's not, and the last thing he needs is another injury. And he's also one of the all-time great quarterbacks. So even if he could get in playing shape by December 25th, let's just say for the sake of the argument he can't, there is no reason that he couldn't get at least somewhat of a sense of what his chemistry is with his receiving core or his running back, like what plays they want to draw up, what have you, in practice and over the offseason. So any benefit that could be gained by him coming back early could be replicated somewhat just by working doubly hard in the offseason. So Aaron Rodgers, on your Christmas Day comeback, bad idea, says this podcaster. Now, on the note of the NFL, Thanksgiving Day is the biggest day in the NFL season, and this Thanksgiving saw the 49ers beat the Seahawks 31-13, the Packers beat the Lions 29-22, and the Cowboys beat the Commanders 45-10. I will say... The Cowboys-Washington game 
say what you will about the Redskins changing their name to the Commanders. As far as whether you're for it, against it, it's controversial. I'm not here to get into that controversy. But the name change does kind of defeat the tradition, I suppose, of the Cowboys versus Indians on Thanksgiving Day. Now that the mascot for the Washington team is no longer an Indian. So that combined with the fact that the Cowboys absolutely thumped them 45-10 to 10, might suggest that the NFL should look at doing away with that Thanksgiving Day tradition in favor of, I don't know, actually putting out the most competitive matchups possible. I really wish the NFL would take a page out of the NBA's playbook when it comes to how they book Thanksgiving Day compared to how the NBA does Christmas Day because NBA Christmas Day is my favorite day of any non-playoff season in sports just because the NBA makes sure that they put the four or five most stat games of the season into that day. They either have an NBA Finals rematch or they have some player who just got traded away from one team return home for the first time on Christmas Day. And this led to some iconic moments. You had Kobe and Shaq meeting up in Christmas Day 2005. You had the Lakers versus the Clippers in Christmas Day 2019. You had the Warriors versus the Cavaliers in Christmas Day 2017. All kinds of different moments. And the NFL is just so stuck on their traditions that it kind of doesn't make it as exciting because the Lions are always going to play somebody. And hey, this year the Lions are actually good. So there's a good argument to be made. They should have been getting a Thanksgiving Day game even if the NBA or the NFL treated it like the NBA treats Christmas Day and they put the best teams out there. But most of the time, the Lions suck and shouldn't be anywhere near a spotlight game. This year was different, and they lost, interestingly enough. And the 49ers and the Seahawks, it's okay. I mean, the 49ers have been pretty good this season. The Seahawks, eh. I'm just saying, like, imagine a scenario in which the NFL... Thanksgiving Day lineup, you had to pick three games. You do the Chiefs and the Eagles, which I think there's a good shot that ends up being the matchup in the Super Bowl. I think a rematch is very likely, at the very least not impossible. You could do the Dolphins versus the Cowboys. Dolphins versus the Lions. I just a lot of interesting potential matchups you could do there. I wish the Bengals were better this season because I always love a good Chiefs Bengals rivalry because that started to blossom over the last couple years. But I mean the Ravens, that could be a pretty good Thanksgiving Day shout out team. So there's a lot of more interesting options that the NFL could have went with. I guess if I had to pick three, I would go with the Chiefs and the Eagles, the Ravens and the Dolphins, and let's see, who else would I go with? Probably the Cowboys and the Lions. But there are a lot of other interesting combinations you could go with there. I just think those three games would have been a lot more interesting and had a lot more at stake than what we got. Now, the interesting thing, though, about the Lions losing is that they beat the Packers in every major statistical category except for fumbles. They had three fumbles, and that was the game right there. Sometimes it's just that simple. And there was one play I was able to catch part of that game at Thanksgiving. But Jordan Love played great, and he just had this one pass where one of his receivers just jumped way up there. And it was one of the most impressive catches I had seen in recent memory. 
until Isaiah Bond topped that last night. Now, Tom Brady was on the Stephen A. Smith show recently, and he got in a lot of, I don't want to say trouble, but he got a lot of pushback and criticism over some remarks he made about the current state of the NFL. Here's what he said. He said, I think there's a lot of mediocrity in today's NFL. I don't see the excellence that I saw in the past. I think the coaching isn't as good as it was. I don't think the development of young players is as good as it was. The rules have allowed a lot of bad habits to get into the actual performance of the game. So I think the product, in my opinion, is less than what it's been. And as his example, he said that defensive players are being forced to bear the responsibility of protecting offensive players instead of offensive players being taught how better to protect themselves against tough defense. Now basically the criticism that has been being leveled against Tom Brady has been that he played in the league last year and he's just newly retired and so if he says that the league is mediocre and not as good as it used to be does that mean we should discount how well he was able to play deep into his prime and should his seventh Super Bowl ring count less because he won it in a watered-down, not-as-good league, in his own words. So that's kind of been the narrative people have been running with. Now, I don't think that the state of the NFL is as doom-and-gloom as Brady makes it out to be yet. Because where he says that the development of young players is being hampered, and that they're getting away with bad habits. I think that there's been a decline from what Brady's saying, but that this decline has not taken over the entire league yet because there are still some old guard players left who remember the more rough days of the NFL. So, like, they're on their way out now, but, like, You've got J.J. Watt. You've got Aaron Rodgers. Up until two years ago, you had Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Ben LaRoclesberger. Those people that know how to play the game correctly, in Tom Brady's eyes, are being phased out. And when he, Tom Brady looks at young quarterbacks like Tua, Mac Jones, Bryce Young, whoever, he sees that they have bad fundamentals and they don't have a fear of the defense like they should because they know that the defense can't touch them as hard as they used to in the good old days. So I don't think that he's saying like the league is trash. He just doesn't like the... He's saying it's mediocre. Well, he says there's a lot of mediocrity, not that he thinks the league as a whole is mediocre. And I think it'll be one of those things, if you're Tom Brady, that in his opinion... The more the years go by, the more this mediocrity will permeate the league, and eventually it will be the norm. And, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's a lot more emphasis on player safety than there was 10 years ago, or 15, 20 years ago, certainly 30 years ago. Now, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing depends on your life philosophy. And you could either look at it as these people sign up to play football and they know what they're getting into when they put on those hel- the helmet and the pads and whatever happens, happens. They put their bodies on the line to play the sport in its truest form. Don't water it down. Or you can go out there and say, look, they put their bodies on the line for our entertainment we should try to our best to take care of them so they can continue to play for as long as possible and do the game they do best. And it's just crazy to look at all the brain damage and the injuries that get racked on these guys' bodies over the years. Now, I don't think Tom Brady is saying that they shouldn't do anything to address injuries and just the overall roughness of football. 
I think he's saying that the league went about it the wrong way. So instead of roughing the passer, for example, or targeting, like plays like that where they make it the defensive player's responsibility to take care of the offensive player, then it bonus should be on the offense. And if there's a targeting or whatever, I don't know how he would regulate, but he's basically just saying that don't have silly flags like that. Emphasize more offensive line strategies and protection. And also, quarterbacks make smart decisions. Like in his quote, later on in his quote, Tom Brady uses Ray Lewis as an example. He says, if I was playing Ray Lewis, I wouldn't send any of my guys up the middle because I know he would eat their lunch. And I want to get the ball off quickly because I know if he gets a lot of time to work, he'll eat my lunch. So protecting the offense should factor into the strategy of the offensive team, essentially what Tom Brady's getting at. But I think it's an interesting debate, and I don't think that the rise of mediocrity should take away from the greatness that Tom Brady has been able to put together over the last 10 years, especially not his seventh Super Bowl ring. Like, sure, is the league that he won that ring in as tough as the league that he got his first ring in? No, it's not. But that's not Tom Brady's fault. He can only play who he's playing, and he didn't do anything to exacerbate the mediocrity in the league, at least until his last season. (laughs) So I don't think he should be penalized. You can only play who you're going up against. But on to, to me, the most exciting thing of the weekend, except for the Iron Bowl, and that is the return of CM Punk after nine long years away from the WWE. I remember in January of 2014, sitting on the couch at my old house, looking on my phone getting the notification on Twitter that CM Punk had walked out of the WWE after the 2014 Royal Rumble over creative differences and injuries and things like that. Which that, That's not what the notification said. It just said he walked out. And it was an ongoing news story. And CM Punk chants hijacked Raw for weeks. And it got so bad that they had to send Paul Heyman out to CM Punk's music for him to sit in the ring and cut a promo blaming CM Punk's departure on the fans in one of the all-time great heel moments of my time watching wrestling. That being said, CM Punk had a lot of gripes with WWE, which is why he left. They made him work a hellacious schedule. He was injured. He had a staph infection that went undiagnosed that he says could have cost him his life. They would give him these things called Z-Packs to just put a Band-Aid on the situation, basically. He felt that they did not care about his health and safety, and he didn't like the way the company was being run, so he walked out. He was also mad that despite being champion for 430-something days, he had never got to main event WrestleMania. He wasn't treated like a top star that he felt that he should be. WrestleMania 30, which would have been the WrestleMania the year he walked out on, he was supposed to work with Triple H, and he was not happy with that. He told Triple H to his face that you need to work with me more than I need to work with you. And he just had all sorts of reasons to be unhappy. If anybody's interested in hearing more about why he left WWE in the first place, check out his podcast from 10 years ago with Colt Cabana, the Art of Wrestling podcast. It's long, but it's very interesting to listen to. So nine long years have gone by since we have seen CM Punk be on a WWE television show as an on-air talent, or at least as an on-air wrestler. There was a brief period in 2019 when he was signed by Fox to be on their WWE news coverage show 
and that was somewhat of a return to WWE, but his contract was not through them. It was through Fox. He never made any appearances on actual WWE TV, so that I don't technically count that. I would say this is his actual return, but just if you're curious, he has done some sort of business dealings with them since. But he has also ran his mouth against them a lot over the last nine years, talking about how much politicking and how much of a toxic work environment it is back there, how they haven't changed, how their relationship with Saudi Arabia makes them a bunch of blood money, all, all sorts of just stuff that would indicate to you that he is not a big fan of the WWE business or creative environment. So if that's how he feels, well, for, first off, I guess I should say, last night was WWE Survivor Series War Games, and CM Punk came out at the end of the show after the Men's War Games match and had a thunderous ovation in his home city of Chicago, and he stared down the baby faces in the ring and the show went off the air. So that's sort of what happened. Now going back to what I was talking about a few seconds ago, why would he come back to WWE if he hated the environment so much? Because he has something else that he hates even more now. And there is nothing that can help people make amends more than finding an even bigger enemy for them to reunite around. And for CM Punk and WWE, that is All Elite Wrestling. So I covered it when it happened two months ago, but CM Punk got fired two months ago by AEW after getting into a backstage fight with Jungle Boy Jack Perry. And plain and simple, as much as he hates WWE, he is currently more angry at AEW and he wanted to find a way to stick it to them which he did by going and joining their biggest competition on the same night as they were having their own competing pay-per-view just so he could take the thunder away from them and it's, I gotta tell you it worked like a charm because all anybody was talking about last night was CM Punk's return not anything about AEW not anything about Randy Orton returning. That was all that was going on on wrestling Twitter was CM Punk. And it's as simple as that to me. Uh, CM Punk, his issues with AEW go back about two years now. He hated the Young Bucks who were executive vice, and Kenny Omega who were executive vice presidents in AEW. They had a backstage altercation at All Out following a media scrum where CM Punk lambasted Tony Khan and the backstage environment in AEW and he was CM Punk was suspended for months came back within two months he'd already got into another backstage fight and was finally fired after Tony Khan claims that he feared for his life because CM Punk lunged at him or something to that effect so that's the CM Punk situation in a nutshell. I think that tomorrow night on Raw, the first thing they need to do is have CM Punk's music come out and let him just cut a pipe bomb. Let him talk from his heart. I know WWE is very big on overly scripting their performers, but just for tomorrow, they need to let CM Punk shoot from the hip. And they need to give him full range to talk about everything. Now, I don't even reasonably, they should. he won't be able to mention AEW by name, but he should be allowed to take some subtle digs and get his version of events out there. But the return of CM Punk was apparently negotiated on November 19th was the first time that there was contact between CM Punk and WWE. He was said to have had an hour-long phone call with Triple H, and it went well, but they didn't actually put pen to paper until last night before the show 
as a way to kind of suppress the rumor mill. People have been talking about CM Punk coming back for weeks now, but it was kind of viewed as a pipe dream. Nobody actually thought it would happen, and I certainly didn't. It was, it was wild, but it was a brand new contract just signed last night. The fact that WWE was able to keep it this secret in an age where everything's on social media, everything's leaking, it was just storytelling at its finest, and kudos to Triple H and Nick Khan for being able to pull this one off. But the key to a good return is where they go from here. Now, when CM Punk came back last night, there were viral videos being sent around of Seth Rollins going ballistic, flipping off CM Punk, dropping F-bombs, having to be held back by Michael Cole of all people. And it got a lot of people talking, saying that maybe there's some real heat between Seth Rollins and CM Punk, or maybe it's a work, and they're going to be building to a CM Punk-Seth Rollins program. I'm kind of torn on if I think it was a work or a shoot or not. For those of you who don't know in wrestling, a work is something that's scripted, a shoot is something that's real. So was Seth Rollins actually angry, or was he just pretending to be angry? So, if he was just pretending, I think it's super interesting that WWE, under their new ownership group, would let... Because keep in mind, WWE is still a PG show. The fact that they would allow one of their top stars to drop F-bombs and shoot birds is just completely unlike anything they have ever allowed anybody else to do. Now, all that stuff happened after the show went off the air, so maybe that's how they were able to allow Seth Rollins to do that, but I don't know. It just seems very out of character for WWE to give talent leave to drop F-bombs like that. That being said, it's also very out of character for a performer to get so beside himself with rage that he forgets he's at work and just starts ranting and raving and shooting birds. So if I had to guess, I think it was a work. But the fact that there's this debate about whether it's real or whether it's not means that WWE is doing something right here. But going forward, a lot of people are going to be talking about should CM Punk win the Royal Rumble. And my answer to that is absolutely not. The story WWE needs to tell is Cody Rhodes going to WrestleMania and doing what he didn't do last year and living out his father's dream and finishing the story of him claiming the WWE Championship for the Rhodes family. This has been a story that has been building for three years now, or two, two or three years now, ever since Cody Rhodes came back. His first promo on Raw, he said he was back for one reason, and that's to win the WWE Championship. And he came awfully close at WrestleMania this year, and he failed. They need to finish that story I don't care if The Rock is coming back. I don't care if CM Punk is now in the picture. Cody Rhodes is who they need to put the rocket on. That doesn't mean I don't think CM Punk should have a lot to do, but he just should not be beating Roman Reigns for the World Heavyweight Championship, the WWE Championship, or winning the Royal Rumble. My, the way I would book it is this. Clearly, they've got something in the books for Seth Rollins and CM Punk, if that was indeed a work, which I think it was. So, going to the Royal Rumble, really the only two, there are three realistic options, two more so than the third. Cody Rhodes could win, CM Punk could win, 
Gunther should win. Gunther is the longest reigning Intercontinental Champion. He could lose the Intercontinental Championship and win the Royal Rumble that night and go challenge Seth Rollins for the World Heavyweight title. But what I would do is CM Punk and Cody Rhodes are by far the two biggest fan favorites to win. So, have them be the final two men in the Royal Rumble. Have them do what Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker did in the 2007 Royal Rumble, which is basically just have a like 10-minute singles match back and forth where either one of them could realistically win and just let the crowd eat it up. And then Cody Rhodes manages to put CM Punk over the top rope. You could, if you want, make it like a tight move. He just somehow manages to flip Punk over. I don't think it takes away from Punk to have him just lose straight up. Don't need to have shenanigans. They can even stare down after the match. Cody Rhodes points to the WrestleMania sign. He goes. He beats Roman Reigns. CM Punk goes and wrestles Seth Rollins because clearly they have issues. And later on down the road, you can have a CM Punk-Cody Rhodes feud based off of that little tease at the Royal Rumble. So that's what I would do. I don't think this should change anything, but we'll have to see how things shape out. Now, CM Punk wasn't the only big return. Randy Orton also came back last night. He was out for a year and a half with a back injury, and he looked jacked when he came out. He also just looked happy to be there. I haven't seen him look this this in shape ever. Not that he's been out of shape, but just like, dude's in my peak physical condition. So he came out, he was scoop slamming everybody, he hit an RKO, they did a five person double hook DDT from the ring ropes. He hit a great RKO on, they had a guy at the top of the War Games cage and Sami Zayn and somebody else, it might have been Jey Uso, pushed him off the top of the cage. Randy Orton caught him and RKO'd him. Not as good of an RKO as Randy Orton's RKO to Evan Bourne 10 years ago because I saw a lot of people online saying that was the greatest RKO of all time. Was not. That Evan Bourne RKO will never be topped just because it was actually out of nowhere. This one, they clearly set it up. You knew he was going to hit an RKO. But it was a great moment. It's good to see Randy Orton back. Doctors told him when he got that back injury that he should retire and he'd never wrestle again. And here he is, proving him wrong. Hopefully, he's able to stay healthy and go on and have a good multi-year run. We wish him nothing but the best. Now, the final thing I want to talk about in this episode is Greg Popovich telling fans in San Antonio to stop booing Kawhi Leonard when the Spurs played the Clippers and Kawhi was shooting free throws and was just getting completely booed out of the building. Greg Popovich went over and told the fans, we're classier than that, don't boo. That is one of the stupidest things I have ever seen happen in the NBA. And that's saying a lot because there's been a lot of stupid things happen in the NBA. For Greg Popovich, first off, booing the opposing team's best player, that's just what it is to be a sports fan. If I'm going to a sporting event, that shows the fans are invested. It shows they care about your team. It shows that they're trying to get in the opposing team's head and psych them out and do their part to help their team win. So, I mean, just right off the bat, booing should not only be okay, but encouraged to the opposing team. Secondly, 
Kawhi Leonard in particular deserves to be booed by the San Antonio Spurs fans. The way he gave up on that organization and flaked his way out of town does not des- make him deserving of the fans' respect. He did get a ring, which is great, but the way he flaked on them, they have a license to boo as far as I'm concerned with Kawhi Leonard. And also, the fans pay to be there. There are a lot of fans that work their tails off to be able to afford those tickets. And if they're going to do that, then when they get to the game, they should be allowed to do whatever it is they want. As long as it's within reason, as long as they're not throwing stuff or saying slurs or trying to get physical. So, if they pay their hard-earned money, they can boo whoever they want to, as far as I see it. And it's sad that the NBA has gotten so soft where they can't even handle a little bit of booing by the fans. And for Greg Popovich to criticize the San Antonio fans who have stood behind him for over 25 years, all in the name of protecting a fragile superstar's fragile ego, I think is just ridiculous. And it shows how weak the NBA has gotten. But hopefully... The fans will continue to do what they did after Pop told them to stop booing, which was to boo Kawhi Leonard even harder. And with that, I will leave y'all. Hope y'all have a good week. And be sure to tune in on Saturday for the SEC Championship. And tune in at 6 o'clock next Sunday to get all the coverage on that, on CM Punk's return to Raw, and more. I will see y'all next Sunday.